The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. This is outrageous, sir. You are nothing but a well-dressed loan shark. Miss Rogers, I assure you, this is a very competitive interest rate, oh. considering your financial history. However, if your son co-signed... Yes. No, 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 no. This is my loan, not his, to pay for repairs to my acting studio, not his. If you would just let me co-sign the loan, or I could just give you the money. Richard, I'm a businesswoman now. I do not want your money. I do not want your signature. Thank you very much. It's the principal. No, Ms. Rogers, it's the interest. And I've just lost mine. Excuse me. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, January 5th, 2017. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. It's ironic that when politics becomes all about interests instead of about principles, that that's when people lose interest in politics. (laughs) Maybe that's why so few seem to be aware of their rapidly changing political environment. Maybe a bit of what they'll learn on our show today will stir up some genuine interest in our political scene. Or is it our politically obscene, Robert? There's been a lot of changes going on. What have you got on your mind today we're going to be talking about? Well, I'll be talking about those changes exactly. More on the uh, federal level level than the provincial. Mm -hmm. First past the post, Proportional representation, Justin Trudeau, Elizabeth May, and the survey done, uh, currently undergoing by, by the federal government called My Democracy. Now, although we can't feel it in the air yet or see any visible signs around us, politics in Ontario has taken a dramatic change effective January 1 of this year, and both democracy and the parliamentary system of governments we once knew in Ontario have now been significantly altered. But before I elaborate on all the new rules and laws, I'd better not forget to remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of Just Right's social media and all our links, including Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and of course, all of our past radio broadcasts. Now, everything I predicted has now already come to pass. The government has now moved beyond electoral boundaries and regulation and is now regulating the entire allowable political debate in the province. And it has now prohibited freedom of association in politics, a line I would never have predicted could possibly be crossed except in completely totalitarian countries. Now, on the day before Christmas, I received, as Chief Financial Officer of the officially registered Freedom Party of Ontario, all of the changes to the so-called electoral financing reforms that are now in effect in the province of Ontario, effective January 1. The direct effect of the new laws applies not only to officially registered political parties, candidates, and associations, but to each and every Ontario resident who might wish to spend a bit of money on any public advertisement or announcement that might be deemed to be a political message. Not an election message, but just a political Political. message? Political. They actually changed the word electoral and elections all throughout the act and turned it into political. Wow. That's just haunting. Now, Robert, seriously, it would be difficult for me to understate 
the seriousness and significance of the amazing political transformation that has occurred in Ontario effective this year. With the passage of Bill 2, an act to amend various statutes with respect to election matters, here are but a few of the following new and very undemocratic laws and regulations that are now in place in Ontario. And on face value, you might think some of them sound pretty innocuous, while a few others might raise an eyebrow of alarm. First, each of the following political parties, the Liberal Party, the Progressive Conservative Party, the New Democratic Party, and the Green Party, thanks to Bill 2, every person in Ontario has now been forced to contribute for the first time ever, as Ontario taxpayers, directly to those political parties, retroactive to 2016, by the way, even though the law takes place effectively January 1st of this year. There's so many implications in that, I just can't get them into, into them today. I guess we'll just have to give twice as much money to Freedom Party well, this year. Well, that's what, the only answer I can see. Now, here's what people have, are giving retroactively in 2016 to the following parties. The Green Party of Ontario gets $630,637.63. <laughs> Ontario Liberal Party, $5,055,097.49. Ontario NDP, $3,104,757.26. The PC Party of Ontario, $4,091,895.43. I know it, right to the penny. And in addition to that, their party constituency associations share an additional $3,050,000 in 2017. Plus, of course, those same payments will go, be repeated each and every year and go up incrementally each year. Freedom Party, by, by the way, Freedom Party of Ontario got to zero. <laughs> okay. What they did to a party like us is they restricted our ability of raising voluntary contributions from individuals from the maximum allowable of $9,900 down to $1,200. My eyebrows are raised in alarm. Uh, you haven't heard it all yet. You know, you'd think we'd committed some sort of capital crime, but the irony is that the corruption which precipitated Bill 201 and Bill 2 was entirely that of the political parties in the legislature. From where I sit, effectively, freedom parties being arbitrarily punished while the Greens, Liberals, PCs, and New Democrats have rewarded their corrupt political parties with millions of taxpayer dollars, all through the magic of political finance reform, which our blind media has heralded as a great step forward for democracy, or which has condemned it for not going far enough. No political party should be receiving forced financing of any kind. It's immoral. Isn't that obvious to a two-year-old? Political parties are private associations. The so-called electoral financing reform laws no longer pertain only to officially registered political parties, as was the case in 2016 and earlier. Everyone, and that means you, Robert, as an individual, anyone listening to this broadcast in Ontario, must register and be subject to the same voluntary fundraising limits if you want to even spend a relatively small amount of money on making your views heard that might be considered, quote-unquote, political. You have to remember, it's not really money that's being controlled or regulated. It's the political debate itself, a debate that no member of provincial parliament wants to have. Whether on climate change or on political financing reform, no debate can be tolerated on those two issues that put so much money into the hands of the people who advocate those issues. Get this, Robert. Party leaders will not be able to attend their own party fundraisers. 
This is so insane as to beg for a psychiatric evaluation of those who came up with this idea. The people who came up with this idea were the kinds of people who are corrupt, who oh, pay to the core, pay to play, I think they call it in the States. But I can understand why they like this idea of banning the leaders from any fundraisers. Look at it, it's the liberals pushing this with their current leader, Kathleen Wynne, at an all-time historic low in popularity. You can understand why liberal self-interest at play would want to keep Wynne away from any liberal fundraisers, right? She, she would lose the money. Like what he was supposed to do, yeah. have uh, the leader of the Freedom Party in the next room, you know, via television? <laughs> this is just so, so idiotic. You're right, Robert. Under the current Ontario electoral financing laws, the, that embracing climate change dinner that we that Freedom Party held on October 29th would not be permitted by the government because Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever was not only in the room, which would be illegal now, but also gave a speech about why Freedom Party would not fight climate change. But this is all ostensibly because a small part, about 40 to $45 of our $100 per plate dinner fee was subject to a political tax credit. They've got new restrictions on fundraising events. More detailed reporting in the financial statements about the, how the income generated at a fundraising event. Uh, how, that doesn't make sense. You know, all income is already reported by individual contributor. So the financial details that the government wants from an event is who is attending, so they can come and round you up later. That's always been the historical truth of this. The whole concept of tax credits are given to us as political parties not because they want to give anyone a benefit. It's to control you. It's the means they get their hands into your organization. And then they say, because of the tax credit, uh, we can do this, we can do that. Well, I don't want your damn tax credit. Leave me alone. It's true. I right? think that the Freedom Party has been on record all the time since its founding never, that, that no party should receive no. any special benefits, tax credits, deductions, payouts, taxpayers' money at all. No, I don't know what this means, but apparently for, for parties with an electronic database, the new restrictions include, quote, reporting on the holding of events on the Internet before an event is held, end quote. I have no idea what that means. I think we'll probably find out. Yeah, we're going to find out sometime sooner or later. Some jackbooted thug kicks down our door. It's just unbelievable what I'm reading here. And then they have third parties that must re register, of course. If, if someone having incurred expenses of $500 for any advertising that could be considered political, they must immediately register with the government. And they will be considered a third party forevermore. And in, if in the years following they don't spend any money, they have to report that. It's just like nil return. Just like we have to do with Forever. political party. Yes, and, and and it's just unbelievable. It's a way to keep track of you, right? And then the third parties, however, they've banned uh, corporate and union contributions to political parties, but the third parties can collect corporate and contribute and, and and trade union contributions. It's ridiculous. It sounds like the PACs in uh, the states. That's exactly what they're doing. And the layer of protection between citizen and government has all but eroded and is no longer something we could call a guarantee by right. When political parties operate on forced contributions, then they have no right to say that they represent anyone because involuntary coerced funding is no evidence of support. It's actually evidence of non-support. You don't need money to catch the ear of a politician or government. You just need to be well-known or, or be getting a significant amount of notoriety or publicity. Activists and lobby groups who give no money to politicians are often those who influence them the most. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Harry? Agnes Morehouse to see you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my 
my dear lady, how very nice to meet you. Do come in. Now, won't you come and sit down? <laughs> right. Um, uh, would you get Miss Morehouse a cup of tea? Or, or is it Mrs. Morehouse? It's my marital status really your concern? Uh, no, 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 no. It's just, uh, you know, I was just uh, really worried about the weather. Uh, uh, would you get, uh, you know, her a cup of tea? <laughs> <laughs> now, what should I call you? Mrs. Morehouse. <laughs> You can call me Agnes. What shall I call you? Um, well, you didn't call me Sir Humphrey. No, <laughs> oh, my dear. I'm not your dear lady. Don't patronise me and cut out the sexist crap, OK? <laughs> uh, OK, Agnes. Uh, uh, now, the reason I wanted us to have this little meeting was because I wanted us to try and understand one another. Basically, I'm sure we're in agreement. Really? Yeah, well, obviously you have your own views about how Britain should be run, but I'm sure we agree on a fundamental basis of order and authority. That's half true. Half true? You agree, I don't. <laughs> but it's obvious. It's obvious if you've got it made under the present system, then you want to use authority to preserve your privileges. But what about the homeless? What about the unemployed? What about the poor people? Oh, yes, yes, I know all about them. <laughs> <laughs> really? What do you know? Well, I've read all the published papers. I've seen all the statistics. I've read all the official reports. Believe me, dear lady, Agnes, dear, I, I, <laughs> I do know all about them. Fine. What does half a pound of margarine cost? <laughs> what does half a pound of margarine cost? Oh, how should I know? Um, 20p. 20p? What, £2.40? I don't know. Right. Why should you? What time do Social Security offices open? How long can you run a one-bar fire with 50 pence in the meat? I'm not entirely sure I follow. Of course you don't. If you knew that sort of thing, you wouldn't agree about using authority to support the system. Look, look, I do understand. I do sympathise. It'd be marvellous if there's no poverty, but we just don't have the resources to achieve that. Who hasn't? The nation. Really? Does this desk belong to the nation? This china? Porcelain. <laughs> These portraits? Or are they your own? Of course not, the government property. Oh, good. They should fetch about what? 80,000? That should keep 20 odd one parent families for a year. Then what about your salary? That has nothing to do with it. Good. <laughs> then we'll have that too. <laughs> Leave you £100 a week, that's 70000 a year for the needy. Look, my salary is merely part of a complex economic structure. Good. We'll simplify it. After all, you don't want to make a profit out of serving your country, do you? <laughs> ah, tea. <laughs> Over here, I think. Kathleen Wynne prorogues the legislature. I'm Brian Lilly with the rebel.media. Do you remember when prorogation was the worst thing ever? Stephen Harper did it twice and oh, it's horrible. You can't do that. It's evil. It's a it's an actual very legitimate parliamentary piece of procedure. First time he did it was to stop a takeover of parliament by a coalition included a bunch of separatists. Let cooler heads prevail. Let the Canadian public be heard. But normally it's just used by a governing party when they want to hit the reset button. And that's what Kathleen Wynne's looking to do. She wants to have a throne speech. So the legislature's even coming back the same day it was supposed to, next Monday. But here's the big but. What does this do? 
it kills off all the existing bills. Now, the Liberals are busy outselling to the Toronto Red Star, their official newspaper of record, that, well, don't worry, all the legislation's going to be back on the order paper. True, but it goes back to square one. It goes back to the beginning. And why does that matter? Because the Liberals have been making an awful lot of hay over their changes to election financing in Ontario. They got caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They got caught with Bob Shirelli and Charles Souza, the then energy minister and finance minister, going to fundraisers with people they were regulating, people they were selling the hydro system off to. Uh, intimate fundraisers for six to $10,000 a head, guaranteed FaceTime with the minister all seemed a little unseemly. So Kathleen Wynne promised change. She went so far as to say MPPs and even candidates seeking office wouldn't be allowed to attend any fundraisers. But now that bill is dead and it's likely not coming back, which is good news when you look at the Ontario Liberal Party website. I'm, I'm sure you're glued to it, right? OntarioLiberal.ca. Go to the event section and follow along with me here because they've got a pile of fundraisers just next week, September 18th at the McMichael Canadian Art Collection, a thousand dollar a head event. And then on September 13th, there's actually an event for Red uh, Trillium Club members. You have to donate a thousand dollars just to be invited as part of the Red Trillium Club. Well, that's a reception just for them. Then on September 28th, the Red Tent Reception. September 30th, the Red Tent Golf Tournament. Both of these are a thousand bucks a pop. Then there's the Central Trillium Reception. And again, another thousand dollars to wine and dine with your favorite liberals up in Vaughan. And then on September the 8th, well, actually, hey, that's now you can, you can go fishing with Arthur Potts, Liberal MPP for just $1,300. There's an awful lot of fundraising, high-end fundraising going on for a party that just yesterday was demanding that MPPs never participate in fundraising. This is part of Kathleen Wynne's plan. She doesn't want to do away with her shady fundraising practices. She never wanted to get away from them in the first place. She was embarrassed that they got caught. She took action because they got caught. And now she's taking an action to undo that action. This is going to, at the least, delay the bill for a long time. Now. The PCs and the NDP could put it back on the agenda if they agree to move it forward, but they're unlikely to because they wanted changes, changes Wynne wouldn't hear of. She's been pushing the other parties so far on this just to try and kill the bill. Now she's figured out another way to do it. She can keep having shady fundraisers and raking in the big dough for her and her liberal machine. That is the real lesson, the real message, the real impact of this prorogation. Well, Brian Lilly completely missed the boat on that call. If there's a lesson to be learned, it's that diehard conservative supporters will take any opportunity to take a shot at their perceived liberal enemies. You know, I made that very point in another forum at the time Lilly originally broadcast this, which was back on September 8th in 2016. Uh, Lilly acknowledged that the Liberals would reintroduce their bills, yet quite incorrectly concluded that Wynne's strategy was to avoid electoral finance reform. That's just simply not what it ever was. You know, his assessment of the electoral finance reform was not unlike that of most of the media, whether on the left or right, and it completely missed the point. The major point was that the introduction of the taxpayer-funded political party financing to the tunes of millions of dollars. So while pundits like Lilly were complaining about a measly $1,000 quite above the board and voluntary contribution to the Liberal Party, 
no one said a thing about the, you know, $5,055,097.49 that the taxpayer paid to the Liberal Party annually with indexed increases planned for every year, plus millions more to their CAs. No fundraising efforts or even justification or persuasion required. Just take the money and run your political party with it. And if you're wondering why you haven't heard from Patrick Brown or Andrea Horwath complaining about this injustice, well, would you complain if you were getting $4 million and, you know, if she's getting $3 million and Green Party's getting six million? They're not going to complain. You know, I think getting all excited about political party fundraisers where the price of admission is $1,000 or more is, is pretty irrelevant. $1,000 is a pittance if, you're, if your concern is undue political influence. The irony is that when there's a fixed price of admission for a fundraiser, that eliminates undue influence of one attendee over the other because everybody gets in on the same terms. And yet they're making it sound like that's the issue. So up until 2016, the highest tax deduction you could get, even if you gave $9,900 to a political party, was still only $1,300. And that would have been reached at the $3,000 contribution level. For any amounts over that, the, con the contributor received no tax credit. So now, in 2017, no private individual can contribute more than $1,200 per year to a political party plus another $1,200 per year to a constituency association. Fundraising banners read the Canadian Press headline story written by Alison Jones on October 5th of 2016 in the London Free Press. And she wrote, quote, The Liberals have said the ban will include not just elected politicians, but candidates leadership contestants, and nomination contestants. Quote, It's like the Liberals kind of trying to hide their own bad behavior under this issue, said NDP leader Andrew Horwath. Well, it's always been alluded that it is a corruption of the system by the Liberals. Again, the kind of pay-for-play, pay for the um, contracts that are being awarded. And, but uh, if favors. the contracts are legitimate, who cares? You, you, it, it, the honesty has to come from the politicians. They're not under any pressure to do what those people give them money for. In fact, under electoral financing regulations, any money given to a political party cannot be for a favor. So if somebody gave, gave us money, <laughs> right, and we didn't follow through, they had no recourse, literally. Well, of course not. Right? So, so what, it's, not, it's a non-issue. Now, Attorney General Yasser Nakvi said that the reason the ban extends to all, pol all politicians is because they all have some influence. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my God, hello. Having influence is the whole point of politics. That's how citizens are able to change the status quo. What Ontario's Attorney General is saying is that politicians may have influence, but anybody who's not a politician may not. I'm reminded of the time when Freedom Party was being threatened with potential lawsuits and a government sanctions and bans. Back when the city of Hamilton, I think it was, uh, their city council took a vote on banning Freedom Party's BIA warning pamphlet because, as one city councilor was quoted saying on the TV news, I still got it, quote, this piece of literature is having some influence. It's changing the minds of people, end quote. And I kid you not, and that was enough for them to consider a ban. <laughs> because the, 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 nothing false in it. They couldn't say anything like that. It's just having an influence. The very idea that a political message, candidate, or party should have influence is pure poison to those in power. And uh, it, you know, it should be obvious, and it should be regarded as a virtue of democracy that you can have influence by doing things like this. 
Today's environment of our false democracy has no tolerance for disagreement. No discussion, no debate, no freedom to debate. Disagreement scares the crap out of people, especially those on the left, because they're unable to articulate what they think. And no one else can understand. That's why Donald Trump was so hated. He polarized the U.S. election, such as it was. So going into the holiday season this past Christmas, I heard some talk show discussions lamenting the fact that today's politics has become too polarized, and that it's a shame people can't get along with each other even at Christmas. It came with a warning not to bring up the subject of President-elect Donald Trump at the Christmas family gathering. And this brought to mind the, the first critical essay written by Ayn Rand, her first essay, her first commentary, volume one, number one, the Ayn Rand newsletter, Credibility and Polarization. And she talks about how important polarization is. And she writes, intellectual confusion is the hallmark of the 20th century induced by those whose task is to provide enlightenment by modern intellectuals. One of their methods is the destruction of language and therefore of thought and therefore of communication by means of anti-concepts. And one of today's fashionable anti-concepts is, quote-unquote, polarization. <laughs> right from today? That was written how long ago? Half a century more? Yes, at least. Its meaning is not very clear, except that it's something bad, undesirable, socially destructive, evil, something that would split the country into irreconcilable camps and conflicts. It's used mainly in political issues and serves as a kind of argument from intimidation. It replaces a discussion of the merits, you know, the truth or falsehood of a given idea by the menacing accusation that such an idea would polarize the country. Polarization is a term borrowed from physics. A dictionary defines polarity as the presence or a manifestation of two opposite or contrasting principles or tendencies. Transplanted from physics to social issues, this means a situation in which men hold opposite or contrasting views or ideas and principles and goals or values. When used as a pejorative, this means that men should not differ in their views, ideas, goals, and values, that such differences are evil, that men must not disagree. And I think this is going to speak a bit to what you're going to be talking about later on too, Robert. I think so, yes. Yeah. In its present state, what this country needs above all is the clarifying, reassuring confidence and credibility-inspiring guidance of fundamental principles, or in modern parlance, intellectual polarization. Now, on every episode of Just Right, we're reminded of the importance of polarizing every issue. Quote, fade into color, color into black and white, sing the Bee Gees in our show's opening theme every week and on the bumper. Some issues are black and white, and that's as polarized as you can get. So the actions and efforts taken to reform government via voting changes and financing rule changes are worse than futile. They're, they're symptoms of the very problem that requires fixing. It is the convention of the political party that's coming under attack by the new Democrats of all parties. The new democracy being simple majority rule, though rule of what or of who, are always questions that will be determined by the very few. That will never change. No matter how many people vote, they have to vote on something. A proposition or a proposal, which is drafted either by a very few individuals or a single individual. It always comes down to that. The phrasing of the question or option in a referendum will predetermine the possible outcomes, and those outcomes ideally would have to be digital, a choice between two options. That's why political parties are a necessary convention in the creation of the conduction of free elections. Political parties must be free from the arbitrary constraints and restrictions of each other, free to compete. 
Without political parties, every election would be reduced to but a single issue, political power and who wins it. What that power would be used for outside the discipline of the political party would degenerate into mob rule with no limitations on government. Emptying the public treasury would be the only goal. Only a political party can establish a single direction in government for a significant number of people and provide the discipline and balance between the governed and those who govern. In politics and in government, there is never a power vacuum. It always gets filled. That's why, as we're about to hear, quote, if the right people don't have the power, then the wrong people will have it. Yes. Senator, do you want to see me? Oh, yes, but... I want to have a word with you about Professor Marriott's article. Yes, I think it's about time we reform local government. Do you, Bernard? Yes. <laughs> At least I think I did. Uh, that is, I'm not wholly against it. Although there are many uh, convincing, uh, some might say conclusive, arguments against it. Some might indeed, Bernard. <laughs> yes. Why? Because, Bernard, once you create genuinely democratic local communities, it won't stop there. Won't it? Well, of course it won't. You see, once they get established, they'll insist on more power. And the politicians will be too frightened to withhold them, so you'll get regional government. Uh, would that matter? Bernard's going to sit down. <laughs> Bernard, what happens at the moment if there is some vacant land in, say, Nottingham? And their rival proposals for its use, you know, a hospital, a college, or an airport. Well, we set up an interdepartmental committee. Department of Health, Department of Education, Department of Transport, Treasury, Environment. Ask for papers, hold meetings, propose, discuss, revise, report back, redraft, normal thing. Precisely. Months of fruitful work. <laughs> Leading to a mature and responsible conclusion. But if you have regional government, they decide it all in Nottingham. Probably in a couple of meetings, complete amateurs. It is their city. And what happens to us? Much less work. Yes, much less work. So little that ministers might almost be able to do it on their own. So we'd have much less power. Well, I don't know whether I really want power. Bernard, if the right people don't have power, do you know what happens? The wrong people get it. <laughs> Politicians, councillors. Ordinary voters. But aren't they supposed to in a democracy? This is a British democracy. <laughs> How do you mean? British democracy recognises that you need a system to protect the important things of life and keep them out of the hands of the barbarians. <laughs> things like the opera. Radio 3. <laughs> the countryside. The law, the universities, both of them. Do you think your recent surge in the polls reflects voter interest in your programs or simply a rejection of incumbent Governor Allison? I think it's a little bit of both. I think the voters have taken a look at Governor Allison's record and decided I might do better. 
This is how the voters like you and... You're listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Thank you to all our financial supporters who have made it possible for us to continue our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, sample some of our timeless past broadcasts, all archived for your listening enjoyment and convenience. Robert, what do you got on tap for us? Well, let's take it out of the provincial realm and go federal, at least federal Canadian politics. But, you know, to our listeners in um, other countries around the world, this applies to you, too. It's all the same thing. Principles are principles, whether you're in Germany listening to this, Russia, the United States, um, or in Great Britain, which is what I'm going to be talking about next, the British parliamentary system in Canada and why they want to change. You know, a few episodes ago, I made the suggestion that Pierre Trudeau back when he was first elected uh, as prime minister in the 60s, while a communist, and he was, was not prepared to make any drastic changes to the fundamental nature of our parliamentary democracy because, frankly, the people wouldn't have put up with it. Justin Trudeau has already revealed that he shares in the communist ideals of his father and their mutual friend, their murderous Fidel Castro, when he gave a glowing eulogy to the late dictator when he died just recently. So now he's prepared to push Canada down the road to a less democratic state with his suggestion that Canadians no longer directly elect their members of parliament and instead vote on which party should run parliament and have party insiders appoint party representatives to parliament. This is how proportional representation works. It's a party system. It's not an individual system. A bit of history first. Canada is a federal constitutional monarchy where the business of government is run in the style of a Westminster-style parliamentary democracy. Of course, the Westminster style has evolved over time. It's not a static thing, and it's used in many countries with variations from the original British system. Ours isn't identical to the British system. We have changes. But one defining feature of the system as it developed was the the first-past-the-post method of selecting a member to Parliament. Note I say you select a member to Parliament, you do not select a representative. While it doesn't have to be the the first-past-the-post method, it is the method which has stood the test of time in ensuring a stable and in many ways a fair method of selecting members. In first-past-the-post, the winning candidate, who by the way does not necessarily have to be a member of any established party, is the one who receives the most votes as opposed to his competitors. If there were only two candidates, this would mean that the winning candidate would have a majority of support. With more than two candidates, however, it's often the case that the winning candidate would not have a majority, but will instead have what's called a plurality. To some, notably to candidates who lose, this poses a problem. This is where Justin Trudeau steps in. In Canada, a ballot usually contains at least four candidates from the four parties who have consistently fielded candidates in all ridings in living memory, my living memory at least. In some ridings, however, there can be as many as 10 or more candidates. Such was the case in the last federal election where the riding of Papineau in Quebec, for example, had 10 names on the ballot. One of those names was Justin Trudeau. And even with that much of a vote split... Trudeau not only achieved a plurality, he actually received a majority of the votes cast. He garnered 51.98% support 
in a field of 10 candidates. Well done for him. His party, however, was elected with only 39.47% of the popular uh, percent of the popular vote. When the Conservative Party under Stephen Harper was elected in 2011, it received almost as much of the popular support as did Justin, Justin Trudeau's Liberals in 2015. Uh, 37.65 to be exact. And while it is often commented on by the liberal press that Justin Trudeau, at the time that Harper's policies were not representative of the will of the people because of his support by only 37.65% of them, we have heard nothing from the press or from Trudeau on the fact that Trudeau's support is now nowhere near a majority, just like Harper. The opposite, in fact, is the case. If an outsider were to judge Canadian support for their government by listening to the state broadcaster, the CBC, or any of the liberal press, they'd believe that Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, is a much-loved prime minister who has the undying support of his people. Of course, this is no more true of Trudeau than it was of Harper. So why has this lack of a majority of the popular vote become such a problem for people now? when we rarely have had a governing party which had a majority approval of the voters. In the 150-year history of Canada, there was only one election where Canadians did not elect someone from outside two main parties. When Liberal Party statisticians started to analyze the voting data, they realized that if Canada had a system of proportional representation, it would be unlikely that the Conservative Party would ever again gain a majority of seats in the House and would therefore never again form the government. That's the reason behind this. They crunched the numbers, they looked at the popular vote, where it goes, to the four parties, main parties, and the Bloc Québécois, the other fifth one. Sure, and and determined that the Conservatives would be dead. And you can always create more fake parties on the ballot to spread out the, the, the vote which has been done. It's been done. By conservatives, right. by the way. Including the Green Party, which they, is one they of their, fake, the their own party. fake, yeah. fake parties. Yep. <laughs> and it was for this reason alone that the Liberals and other left-leaning parties support abolishment of the first-past-the-post system. I do not support this change in our system of voting. Not simply because it's a diabolical plot by the Liberals to gerrymander election results by the back door, but because it destroys Canadians' ability to directly elect their members of Parliament. By example, let's say there are five candidates on the ballot with candidate number one receiving a plurality but not a majority. It's quite conceivable that when the popular vote across the country is considered, a losing candidate in a riding may actually be appointed to Parliament based on the countrywide popular vote. Who knows how this is going to turn out? Likewise, if a particularly small party, such as the Green Party, were to not have anyone win past the post, but get, say, 5% of the popular vote. Then Green Party insiders would then select 17 people to represent the party in Parliament. Not the constituents, the party in Parliament. These 17 people represent 5% of the number of seats in Parliament at this time, 338. With such a minuscule vote total, the ultra-left, anti-human voice of the Green Party, for example, would now have a powerful voice on the federal stage. Now, while some may think that this is only fair, consider for a moment how many other unpopular yet extremist views are held by Canadians. If only 1% of Canadians held a particularly disturbing political viewpoint, 
to the other 99%. If represented by a single-issue party like the Greens, it would demand three seats in Parliament. 1% translates out to about three seats in Parliament. And with those seats, they would get their voices read into Hansard, the official record of parliamentary debates. They would be covered on parliamentary television debates. They would, in effect, have found a platform for their views by simply running enough candidates and getting as little as 1% of the vote. Just so you are aware, there are candidates who do nothing more than put their name on the ballot and get more than 1% of the vote. Now, I choose the Green Party as an example of a party which holds extremist views, which it does. But you can guess for yourself some of the kinds of views people may hold which may be quite distasteful. There are currently 20 political parties registered with Elections Canada, including Marxist-Leninists, the Communist Party of Canada, the Animal Alliance Environmental Voters Party of Canada, the Christian Heritage Party of Canada, and the Pirate Party of Canada. If you aren't familiar with these parties, wait until proportional representation is brought in by Justin Trudeau and you'll find out what they stand for. Why does Humphrey want me to see this Professor Marriott? You must have an ulterior motive. Why? All Humphrey's motives are ulterior. <laughs> Has he, Bernard? I mean, what does Humphrey really think about this plan? Uh, well, uh, well, I think, uh, that is, I'm sure, if, um, if, uh, if it's what you want, then I'm sure Sir Humphrey would, uh, uh, well, he would... Uh... As bad as that. Professor Marriott is outside. Will you see him? Yes, of course. Bernard, I wonder if you'll be kind. Humphrey, what's your view of the Marriott plan? Well, it is a brilliant way of bringing real democracy into the government of Britain. So you're in favour? That's not what he said. <laughs> Prime Minister, if you genuinely want real democratic government, you will have my unquestioning support. Professor Marriott. Oh, oh Professor. Come in. Good of you to come. Do sit down. Prime Minister, oh, what an honour to meet you. Yes, I know. <laughs> Prime Minister. Professor Marriott has a sequel to his original article, which is due to be published next month. It is even more exciting than the first one. Tell me more, Professor. Yes. Tell the Prime Minister about the benefits to Parliament. Well, as you know, under my local government scheme, each borough would have its 500 street representatives. Now, this means that the local MP would be able to talk to them all in one hall. So they'd really get to know him. Exactly, and tell all the people in their street about him. Personal, private, word-of-mouth recommendation. Sounds terrific. Hold on a moment. Where would the constituency party come in? Ah, well, that's the marvellous thing. Party organisations would be completely bypassed. MPs would become genuinely independent. What? You see, <laughs> if they were personally known to all their constituents or their committee representatives, then whether MPs would get re-elected would be nothing to do with the party backed them or not. It would depend on whether the constituents felt they were doing a good job. So if the MP wasn't dependent on his party machine, he could actually vote against his own government party and get away with it. Exactly, because there'd be no need for official candidates. Election would depend on the reputation of each individual MP, not the image of the party leader. An end of the party machine, an end to the power of the whips. But how would the government get its unpopular legislation through without being able to twist the odd arm? How would it command a majority? It couldn't. There could only be legislation if a majority of the MPs were actually in favour of it. Parliament would become genuinely democratic. Prime Minister, it is the most courageous policy you have ever proposed. <laughs> 
Professor, thank you so much. Absolutely fascinating. Goodbye. <laughs> Prime Minister, it's a splendid idea, real democracy. Dorothy, it's out of the question. But the Marriott scheme was our way of controlling the local authority. Well, now what are we going to do about Agnes Morehouse and the police? Oh, Prime Minister, I've had another word with her. Uh, to put it simply, Prime Minister, uh, certain informal discussions took place involving a full and frank exchange of views out of which there arose a series of proposals, which on examination proved to indicate certain promising lines of inquiry, which when pursued led to the realization that the alternative courses of action might in fact in certain circumstances be susceptible of discrete modification, leading to a reappraisal of the original areas of difference and pointing the way to encouraging possibilities of compromise and cooperation which if bilaterally implemented with appropriate give and take on both sides <laughs> might if the climate were right, have a reasonable possibility at the end of the day of leading rightly or wrongly to a mutually satisfactory resolution. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> we did a deal. <laughs> Oddly enough, she didn't seem to like the idea of democracy any more than you. Or you. Quite so, dear lady. Well, I think we're all agreed that the nation isn't quite ready for total democracy. Perhaps uh, next century? <laughs> well, you could still be Prime Minister next century. Hmm? Well, the one after that. Yes, Prime Minister. <laughs> the current system of first-past-the-post has the effect of ensuring that all of the members of Parliament who win the race are holding viewpoints that are and expressing policies which are acceptable to a very large number of Canadians. The election of a Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, proves that even people with extreme leftist viewpoints may be the first past the post on rare occasions, if only after such a person has convinced a large number of people in her riding to support her. In May's case, she not only got a plurality of votes, just like Trudeau in her riding, um, but a majority as well, 54.4%. So a fringe party can elect a member to Parliament, and judging by May's performance, this is one good reason not to support proportional representation. It shows that uh, you can get in there any, using the current sure. system, right? You don't need PR don't to do it. You don't need to gerrymander the whole voting system no. to get in. <laughs> now, with PR, the Greens actually would have had as many as 11 seats in the House of Commons. Can you imagine 11 Green Party members in the House of Commons. Your disruption. Oh, yeah. This brings us to the Quebec Separatist Party, the uh, Quebec Bloc, or the Parti Québécois en français. The Bloc, under proportional representation, if they had the support of a huge percentage of the Quebec population, and if the support of other parties in Canada were split enough through, about, through the 20 different or plus parties, believe it or not, the Bloc Québec could conceivably hold the balance of power and become the governing party of Canada <laughs> under PR. A chilling thought, but a conceivable one with proportional representation. The example of the bloc winning the government is a demonstration of why first-past-the-post is a superior method for electing members to Parliament. 
It has the effect of tempering regional differences across the country. At no time under a first-past-the-post system could a single province dominate the chamber. Under first-past-the-post, Ontario, with the largest population, could have no more than 95 seats in a chamber holding 338. So first-past-the-post has two effects so far. It keeps most of the loonies out, and it prevents any one region from dominating Parliament. First-past-the-post has a neutralizing effect on radical ideas and a counterbalancing force when it comes to provincial or regional rivalries. First-past-the-post also has the effect of allowing for a stable government. Just witness the history of parliaments around the globe that have had to deal with the cacophony of voices when their members are chosen by proportional representation. Countries of Italy and Israel come to mind as rather dysfunctional due to the compromises having to be made to set up coalitions. Now, Bob, you were talking earlier in the show about about polarities, the opposite of polarities, which is a good thing, like an adversarial adversarial Mm. system in the court of law, is compromise. If everybody's compromising, there is no polarity. Well, another word for compromise, as it's being used, is deal-making, which is what we're trying to avoid with all this electoral financing reform. They don't want anybody to make deals. Exactly. (laughs) But this form of electoral voting reform forces making deals on everybody constantly. It never ends. Coalition governments do not give the voters a clear idea of the principles and values being followed by the members of parliament and the government. If we had PR in Canada with members of parliament representing 20 of the current registered parties, there's no telling which leader could rally the support of the other parties in order to become the governing party. The left-leaning parties might join together Or the center-right might join the left one day and the right the next, depending on which favors and deals are meted out by the ruling party. Canada may end up with prime ministers changing frequently based on backroom deals between parties which have little support among the population as a whole. You know, imagine making deals with the Green Party's Elizabeth May. Consider a, a parliament where the vote is split evenly between the Liberals, Conservatives, and the NDP. And along comes May or someone else whose political views are just as unpopular amongst the majority of Canadians. She, or he, is able to convince the NDP and the Liberals to come together with her as a coalition leader, and hence Prime Minister. The thought's chilling. That somebody like Elizabeth May, with such small support throughout the country, even though she did win a majority in her own one riding in B.C., could be the Prime Minister. (laughs) Chilling. This is only one version of a dystopian future which faces Canada if we abandon the first-past-the-post system. We have lived with so, you know, with it for so many generations, it's provable we know that it works. I'm sure that most of us have received that uh, card in the mail asking us to complete on an online survey, asking us our views on various issues of elections and democracy. I did the survey on uh, mydemocracy.ca and was disturbed by the questions asked and even by the way they tallied my results. Rather than being upfront and asking people point blank if they're in favor of the current first-past-the-post system or would prefer another system, such as proportional representation or a ranked ballot or a single transferable vote. By the way, a ranked ballot and a single transferable vote do have merits. PR does not. They ask us questions that help us describe our so-called democratic, quote, values. For example, they ask in proposition, that's what they call them, not questions, but proposition number one. There you go. One of 20. 
They're already prefixing the result. Yeah. Quote, a party that wins the most seats in an election should still have to compromise with other parties, even if it means reconsidering some of its policies, unquote. Oh, my Lord. Consider the language. Have to compromise. Really? Have to? By who say so? And what are the consequences for the party which holds the most seats not compromising yeah. the values what majority and principles they ran on during the election? <laughs> what happens to them? What are the consequences? There follow several questions of the same fuzzy logic. Proposition 2, quote, There should be greater diversity of views in Parliament, unquote. Apparently, the implication is that the current system does not allow for diversity of views. Well, I would agree there. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> but you know the diversity I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but there are some diverse views out there which are certainly unpalatable mm. to the majority of population, and we do not necessarily benefit by having them have members in the parliament. Does diversity in views means we have to have members of parliament who hold views shared only by a small number of Canadians, whether those views are popular or not? Perhaps a smattering of extremist views like Holocaust deniers will make parliament more diverse? Is that what you're after, Justin? Perhaps a few more communists sprinkled in with a few Maoists, Taoists, and holier-than-thouists? That'll liven up the debates, won't it? And, of course, the governing party will have to compromise their values in order to get along with the extremists. Because, you know, it's all about compromise. You can't have polarity. If you have a Holocaust denier there in with the Jewish party, they've got to come to a meeting of the minds to make Parliament work. That's the Canadian way, right, Justin? Proposition number six. Quote, members of Parliament should always support the position of their party, even if it means going against the wishes of their constituents. Unquote. This one I find particularly rich. There is no way for a member of parliament to know the wishes of all of his constituents. As recent polling results in the United States showed, there is no way to accurately know the wishes of a constituency with any degree of accuracy. The best way, if there is any, is to run as a candidate in an election on a party platform. And if you win, then you act according to the platform you ran on. Simple. It's called first-past-the-post. If the constituents change their minds later, they'll vote you out of office. Again, simple. Acting in Parliament according to the polls is a betrayal to the supporters who put you in office based on the platform that you ran on. You may well guess my response to the so-called propositions. At the end of the survey, I received the following judgment of my views. Quote, Your views most align with challengers. Challengers typically believe that, above all, democracy should be responsive to citizens. They tend to be more skeptical of government and thus open to ideas that could enhance accountability of governments and give voters more control, What? This is the exact opposite of the way I express my views. My views were to leave well enough alone. But let's continue. Quote, Challengers generally prefer governments that are more decisive and less likely to prioritize compromise with other parties. Okay, that's true enough. They usually expect parties to take responsibility for their decisions, unquote. So far, so good. Yes, that I agree with. It continues, quote, and for voters to have more ways to influence politics. Huh? That statement doesn't reflect my values at all. They continue, quote, to that end, 
challengers are generally interested in voting, having voters rather having more options or additional ways to express their choices on a ballot during an election. Didn't I just get through answering these proposition questions to say the exact opposite, and yet they say that I'm a challenger because I want to have more options on the ballot during an election? I'm reminded that voting machines in the states were the improperly, where they were improperly calibrated. You, you touch on the screen and where it says Donald Trump, and up pops Hillary Clinton's name because yes. if somebody didn't calibrate the screen properly, whether accidentally or intentionally. What kinds of thoughts come to mind when you see that you're being described as a challenger? Oxford defines a challenger as, quote, a person who disputes the truth or places themselves in oppositions to something, unquote. Well, since my response to the survey were in favor of the current system, I can only assume that what I mean called a challenger for was because I'm challenging Justin Trudeau's democratic values, so-called, which, by the way, is nothing but majority rule. So what does the survey call people on the other end of the spectrum? What does it label people who want change in the direction that Justin Trudeau is promoting? These people are called cooperators. Worse. <laughs> One final note on the My Democracy survey. It appears that a majority of people want to imprison people who do not vote. That's correct. A majority of people want voting to be mandatory, i.e. backed up by the force of law. This viewpoint was held by, you guessed it, cooperators. Of course. Yeah. Followed closely behind by the group called Innovators. <laughs> we are in for some very, tr very troubling times in this country, my friends, and you've been fairly warned, fellow travelers or challengers. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think it's coming, uh, this proportional representation or some change to a first-past-the-post system. But, you know, when it comes down to it, regardless of the system we have in place to elect members of parliament or the parties who sit in parliament, what this country needs so that these people cannot destroy our lives any further than they have is a total cultural change, not a political one. Well, democracy is it was once properly understood, and as it was once taught in learned institutions and universities, I don't think it exists anymore, Robert. A true democracy is not about voting. It's about freedom, capitalism, and individual rights. That's the culture I'm talking yep. about. It's about the protection of life, liberty, and property, protection from criminals and from government. That's not what we have today, and our soaring government deficits, debts, spending, and their outrageous objectives and goals with everything from fighting climate to eliminating gender distinctions. This shows you how, how mad it's all become. It's just wrong. But we are still as just right in 2017 as we have been in all our previous years of broadcasting. So join us again for our next chapter, one week from today, when we will continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be all right. Yeah. Agnes Morehouse, Humphrey. Ah, Agnes, why don't you sit over here? Now, Agnes, the Prime Minister is really worried about your attitude to the police. Oh, good. <laughs> so, he's proposing a wholesale reform of local government. Street representatives, voting communities of a couple of hundred households, total involvement of the whole borough electorate in the selection of candidates. 
<laughs> the ordinary voters are simple people. They don't see their needs. They can't analyse problems. They need leadership to guide them the way they ought to go. And don't you think the people would vote for such leadership? The people don't always understand what's good for them. Oh! <laughs> I do so agree with you. Do you? Well, of course! That's how the civil service has survived the centuries. <laughs> we made this country what it is, but nobody would ever vote for us. We know what's right for this country. So do we. The only way is to have a small group in charge and just let the people have a mass vote every few years. But if they actually got to know the people they were voting for... If they actually got to talk to them, then they'd fall for all the silly conventional ideas. Humphrey. Agnes. <laughs>